You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Well, good morning. How you doing out there? Good? Well, hey, my name is Drew. I'm so glad to be here with you. Uh, I recognize maybe a lot of you don't know who I am, so I'll introduce myself a little bit. Uh, I've been on staff with Kensington for about 10 years. I work with our young adults ages 18 through 29. Uh, We actually have a gathering that meets every Tuesday night, so if you're a young person, a young adult, we'd love to meet you at our hub and have a conversation just to find a way to have you connect in. A little bit about me, Um, I've been married to my wife, Natalie, for almost eight years. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, And we have a four-year-old son, or turning four-year-old son, Bronson, a turning one-year-old daughter, Ivory. And a fun fact about my wife and I, our favorite ice cream that we binge is the raspberry dark chocolate chunk ice cream that you can find at Kroger, but don't buy it because it's always out of stock because it's so good. But you'll thank me later. Um, Anyways, thanks for being here today. But hey, well, before we uh, get going, as the series is called, uh, we want to just pause for a moment and receive our offering. If the ushers would like to come forward um, with the baskets, uh, we want to say thank you so much for your generosity. And for those of you who are joining us online, welcome. Um, This is a moment that fuels the mission of Kensington. Um, We are highlighting our Move Out Network um, today, which is uh, about moving outside the walls of the church to impact our neighbors. And this is what this moment does. It helps fuel some of our teams to actually reach our neighbors in a way that loves and serves them and meets their needs. And so that's what this moment is about, is about us being able to give back to our community and across the globe as well. Um, And there's a few easy ways you can give. You can text give by texting Kensington to 77977, give on the app, or with classic cash or check. And so while that's kind of being passed around, um, I want to just say that we are in the final week of our series called Get Going, which is a series on how to to share your faith in an effective way that truly meets people. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of talking points we can have in evangelism conversations or scripts that we use in evangelism conversations, and they work. I've actually done them a lot, even in my time when I was a part of a a college ministry where you share your faith in the dorms. Um, But today, I want to add another strategy of how to share our faith in a way that's effective um, that I believe is going to serve and add value. So before we get going, I do have a competition. Are you ready? I have a game, a little competition. Y'all ready? Psyched up for it? Okay. Getting the energy in the, in the room out here. So in order to do it, though, I do have to take a, a picture. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a selfie of the crowd. This is a huge audience. How many people do you think are in here? A lot? Anyways, all right. Um, I don't know if we're going to get everyone. Can you make some noise a little bit? Just like, act like we're in a cool, awesome, yay, okay. Awesome. So, okay. So here's how we're going to play this game. Um, the game is this. I'm going to post this onto my social media channels. And the first 10 people who can find it, without telling you, you know, what my handles are, the first 10 people who can find it, uh, you're going to get a prize. And uh, in order to get the prize, you have to like the post, you have to follow me back, you have to leave a comment, and then the prize is that you're going to get a picture with me out in the lobby. (laughs) And I have a copy of my signed book that I'm going to leave and gift to you on the way out. So are you ready? Get out your phones, and three, two, one, and go. Okay, I'm just kidding. We're kidding. I'm just, sorry. That was very cringy, wasn't it? Because can you imagine... If I got up here as a speaker and I began to have this weird, cringy sense of self-promotion, you felt that. See, I've learned that a part, one of the best ways to teach people is by creating a game 
where the audience has to emotionally feel the lesson before you teach the lesson. That way you emotionally understand the principle that's being taught before you actually hear. So do you know who does this? Jesus uses this when he tells parables. He introduces a shocking message in a language that the audience would understand to engage their emotions before teaching them the actual lesson. So my question is, how did it feel? You probably felt some suspicion that I had an agenda on some level and you were hoping Dear God, let this guy not be so cringy. You're thinking to yourself, man, he's a little bit too young to be up there. I really wish Craig McGlasson was speaking today. (laughs) But alas, the lesson today is whenever uh, whenever someone has an agenda, we can feel it and it makes us want to serve it less. In fact, it makes us resist that relationship Because we feel like if someone's putting their best interest and their needs first, that our needs won't be mutually met in this relationship. And I think even toddlers are beginning, like I'm learning toddlers can smell and recognize agenda. I've learned this with my toddler. As a parent, you have agendas. We want to show up on time. We want to sleep through the night with no little ones in our bed. And so we present our agenda as their best interest. We say, but your friend is gonna be there. You can wear your favorite shirt or this sleeping pill tastes like candy. (laughs) And then you learn they can recognize you have an agenda. So then you move to the bribe phase because you're gonna put their best interest in front of them now. And even then they can recognize it. I have the all-time bribe with my son. I literally did this this week. And I've learned the more animated you can make the bribe, the more effective. So I went, guess what? He went, what? I said, if you get in the car right now, I'm gonna give you a double chocolate donut. And he goes, you fool. The chocolate frosting makes my tummy hurt. (laughs) Even bribes get recognized. I think this is the reason why many of us don't share our faith. Because sharing our faith feels like an agenda. Whether it's someone like me who's on stage talking to you and telling you you're supposed to do it, or whether you're a non-Christian and someone's trying to tell you to become a Christian, there can feel like this agenda to be converted, to make them feel better about their position, even though you're not ready to give your life to this religion. For many of us, we feel like sharing faith has this sense of agenda. And I think I'm really okay with admitting that most to all of us in this room aren't really sharing our faith. And myself included, I'm not walking around Target or Starbucks or Kroger opening up conversations about Jesus. In fact, uh, 80%, there was a study done by Lifeway Research, 80% of Jesus followers who were devoted in the last six months, 80% of them did not share their faith. And another 10% of them only shared their faith one time. Think about it like this. I want you to think of your best friend If your best friend in the universe, maybe it's your partner or your spouse, if you have a best friend and they only open up to you vulnerably about how they're doing, you know, how they're feeling only one time within six months, you might get really curious. You'd think to yourself, 
man, their mindset around getting genuine human connection or their strategy to get genuine human connection isn't actually getting them human connection because they're thinking about it in a way that doesn't actually make them vulnerable. And I think in the same way, if we're being honest, if 90% of us aren't really sharing our faith, we likely might need to adopt a different or a new mindset or strategy that would actually make us share our faith and feel really good about it. Now, of course, can we have evangelistic conversations, talking points, scripts, the Romans road? Absolutely. I've done them and they can work. But what if there was another strategy that we could use? In fact, I think the real reason why we don't share our faith is because of the motivation source. The motivation source for sharing our faith is primarily fear. It tips the scales. It's fear on both ends. Whether we are sharing our faith or are not, the motivation source tends to be fear. I mean, let's just be real. It's unbelievably cringy to unchurched or non-Christian people when they feel like someone's evangelizing to them. We're afraid that we're gonna lose relationships, we'll cause harm, we'll maybe feel defensive or combative, we are gonna fight to be heard and seen and maybe lose the heart and the argument, or we're gonna fear, and this is mine, we're gonna fear like someone's gonna judge us for not being a critical thinker because we still believe all that stuff. And then there's the fear of eternity, That for us, that's an overwhelming idea to think about. So we either suppress it or we consciously reject having to think about the weightiness of eternity. And if we're honest, deep down, many of us are afraid if we say the wrong thing, we might deter someone from having an eternity with God. And so all of those reasons make us fearful. And when we're afraid, we freeze and then we don't share our faith and then Finally, the last reason is we're afraid God's disappointed with us because we're not sharing our faith and that perpetuates the shame cycle as we've already been convinced we don't want to do it. See, fear is the primary motivation source for all of us. And today, I want to switch the motivation source from being fear into the one that Jesus suggests, which is love. Because fear, whether we like it or not, it makes us use agenda and subtle force. It makes us use force. Have you been in a romantic relationship before and you slowly begin to subtly coerce someone into trying to meet your needs? You're subtly coercing them to change who they are instead of saying what you do and don't like and being deeply committed to the type of relationship that you want? How many of us are afraid to be to to commit to what we like and want to have and instead try to use a subtle agenda to try to make someone else, you know, conform so that we can feel safe inside instead of being authentic about what we want and need. And that's what fear does. It makes us use agenda and a little bit of force. But I believe love, when we can commit to love and authenticity, we might disarm the heart and actually be more effective in sharing our faith. And so Jesus, I believe when we look at him, he does this through a story tactic, as I said, called a parable. And I love this quote. It says that parables were not meant to explain things to people's satisfaction, but to call into question all of their previous explanations and understandings all of their previous understandings and explanations. Keyword previous. Because previous says that they had an understanding that Jesus thought needed to be updated. 
And so what was the previous understanding of the ancient audience to a parable that Jesus was going to tell called the parable of the minus? Well, I'm going to rewind us all the way back to the year 4 BC. This is around the time when Jesus was born. And King Herod was ruling over Judea. And one day, there, he put a golden eagle on the temple of God, which was blasphemous to the Jews. And two teachers and 40 youths felt like this was blasphemous, and they were accused of taking axes and chopping the eagle off of the temple. King Herod arrested them and then executed them. Shortly after, King Herod dies right before Passover. And at Passover, as all the Jews file into the city of Jerusalem, Archelaus is the next king who's the son. And as he ascends the golden throne, the crowd gathers around and is remembering the injustice that was never solved by his father. And they begin to protest. And Archelaus flees and escapes to feast as he is now the king-elect, if you will, or the president-elect, if you kind of think of it. He's the king-elect, and all of a sudden he's hearing the mourning and the wailing and the crying coming from the temple as tensions begin to escalate. He is fearful, and his guards and the people are beginning to fight, and out of fear, he sends his whole army into the temple and kills 3,000 Jews in a bloodbath. Well, this is a problem because he's not even king yet. So he runs away to Rome where Caesar is, who's going to make, to establish him as king. But of course, all these Jewish people are furious with this, this mass extermination of people. And they send about 50 Jewish authorities, including his own family member, to talk to Caesar to say, please do not let this man be king. He's brutal and violent. And Caesar listens. And instead, he only gives him a quarter of what he was supposed to get from his father. And Archelaus resides and settles down in a town called Jericho. Take note. In Jericho, he builds a lofty residence and palace and builds a massive aqueduct system and becomes familiar with all the town people. And fast forward 25 years to Luke chapter 19, Jesus is in where? Jericho. Beating to integrate his new Follower Zacchaeus, the tax collector, into his crew. And he takes some new followers, seekers, and, and critics who are from Jericho, and they travel towards Jerusalem as people are beginning to count heads in the crowd that's following him to see that maybe we're going to be able to, with this size, overtake all the Roman soldiers who are in Jerusalem, and this is how the kingdom of God is going to appear. Because in their minds, Jesus was supposed to bring Israel back to its glory days of King David and King Solomon. And how else to do it but to use military force of this ragtag band of followers. And Jesus hears the conversation and he tells a parable to say, this is actually what my kingdom is going to be like. He says this. He went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And he said, a man of noble birth, went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So then he called his servants and gave them, or sorry, he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. We can kind of begin to wonder 
that Jesus was telling this story on purpose to this specific audience. He's calling upon the memory of a known brutal ruler, a ruler that was so brutal that even Caesar deposed him of being king after only 10 years of rule because enough Jews complained of his brutality that Caesar had enough and deposed him. And so Jesus is almost calling upon the emotion of a ruler to cause an emotional sense in the listeners before he explains the actual story. But this has a twist, because he is here to teach a lesson about being faithful. And so he says, he gives them a mina. And if you don't know what a mina is, it's three months worth of wages. So shout out to Dave Ramsey on baby step number three. This is what he's telling them to do with their emergency fund. Let's read the rest of the parable. He says this, then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more minas. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, uh, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth for I was afraid of you. The motivation source was fear because you're all you're a hard man. I mean, you take out what you didn't even put in. I mean, I'm the one investing this coin, right? And then you're going to reap what you didn't even put into the ground. You're going to collect all my crops when you didn't sow the seed. His master replied, all right, I will judge you by your own words then, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, that I take out what I didn't even put in, and that I collect what I didn't even put into the ground. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit then, so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. So this is the verse as a Peaker, you don't want to copy and paste into the preaching document because it doesn't seem like it fits with the talk. So what's really going on here? What's Jesus trying to really describe? Well, this doesn't sound like give what you got. It sounds like give or you'll get caught. If you don't invest your gift and talents into the kingdom of God, you're going to get caught and it's going to be given to somebody else. But let's think about the, the idea of a parable again. Let's think about the parable of the persistent widow. Maybe you remember it or or heard distantly of it. The parable of the persistent widow is a story of an unjust judge who's so tired of hearing a widow's request that the judge grants the request. Is Jesus trying to describe God as an unjust judge who's tired of hearing widows? No. Jesus' point is saying, you'll recognize this figure in your society? This is a common figure, an unjust judge? If they're willing to grant requests, how much more is your heavenly father who loves you willing to grant your request? And so what is Jesus saying here about the parable? He's saying, hey, you're so used to brutal kings who are willing to use force and violence to collect their interest. You think they care about their money to build their cause and they're gonna use force and fear? How much more do you think I care about my kingdom that's legislated by love, that clothes the naked, that feeds the hungry, that uplifts the poor, 
that condemns the unjust accumulation of wealth? How much more do you think I care about this kingdom that loves its neighbor? And I'm going to show you how much I care by dying on a cross. Jesus' message wasn't trying to describe his type of leadership. He's here to raise the challenge to say, this is a serious matter because my kingdom matters. And the kingdom I'm trying to establish is different. See, I think when we understand the heart of Jesus, all of a sudden things begin to look different. It's not a motivation source of fear. It's actually a motivation source of love. So I think there's three takeaways from this parable. The first takeaway is that Jesus is saying, expand my kingdom by giving what you got. Ten servants get ten minus equally. Give what you have to my kingdom. Jesus is the type of ruler who can make a feast out of a little boy's lunch and feed thousands. Jesus is the type of ruler who says, even with the faith, faith the side of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Jesus is the type of ruler that says even a widow's offering of all that she has of two coins is more in the kingdom of God than the wealthy giving out of their abundance. Jesus is not like Archelaus who needs to use force and power to spread his kingdom. Jesus says, I'm going to give what I got, which is my body on a cross for the sins of the world with no defense because that's how my kingdom's going to get run. Expand my kingdom by giving what you got. So the question is, what is your mina? What is the thing that God has given to you that's unique and special to you that you can invest in his kingdom expansion project? Maybe you have a talent with your hands in woodworking. Maybe you know how to hold space compassionately. Maybe you're an amazing sports coach. What do you have in your resources that God has given to you uniquely that he wants you to use as an offering of love that's authentic to you that can expand his kingdom. In fact, this is what we believe at Kensington, and this is how we've established the Move Out Network. The Move Out Network is saying we're here to love people with no agenda. We're not here to have an agenda because we have something that we want. We want to love our neighbors so well that you're going to be so compelled that you're just going to see Jesus through us because at the end of the day, we're going to have an agenda, right? We have an agenda because some of us love Jesus and want people to know him. And this method is the one that Jesus employs all throughout his ministry of meeting people where they were to give them what they needed to disarm their heart and meet them with love. So what is your mina? I know for me, um, my mina would actually be a little bit more of, of holding deep, compassionate space for people wherever they are in their faith journey. And I think how that kind of evolved is because I had a, a moment a few years ago with one of my relatives who confessed to me that they were no longer a Christian, they didn't believe in God at all. And as they confessed this, it was kind of shocking to me because I knew their family, I knew their upbringing, and to me it felt paralyzing because obviously they knew that for me I work in ministry. And immediately I resorted right back to my talking points. In my script, I said, well, you know, I guess for me, the reason why I believe, you know, there's a bunch of historical evidence around the resurrection event, and if that's true, then who Jesus says he is is true, and, you know, the Bible, I believe it's intrinsically, you know, valuable. I feel like it makes me better at life, and I love praying. It makes me feel, like, at peace. And, and as I'm saying it, it, it's not meeting them because that's not where they were, and they immediately said, see, you have to defend something. And I said, you're absolutely right, and I'm completely giving you a script. And so I reframed it and I said, can I be honest with really, I guess, why I believe? For me, I've had so many miraculous moments 
And I just deeply love the connection to my heavenly father. And I feel like there's a lot of valuable wisdom that does make me better at life. And it was a moment to have a real authentic conversation that disarmed the heart instead of having to feed a script because I had an agenda and that my words could deter them forever. And I think a helpful way for us to think about it is, I want you to imagine that this point on the stage is, is, is the number zero. And this is the moment that people on a timeline choose to follow Jesus. And for some people, some of us in the room, we're at 10. Like we're following Jesus. You're already putting all your emojis on Facebook and the prayer hands and glory, hallelujah, like you're all set. And you're running with Jesus. You know, I might be more here like a, like a one or a two, just doing my best to follow Jesus. And, um, but some people, maybe they're at negative five and others are at like negative 10. And for some of us, we need to learn that by giving what we got and meeting people without an agenda, maybe by sitting there and holding space for someone, we move them from a negative 10 to a negative nine. Maybe when you show up to that teenager's baseball game, you move them from a negative nine to a negative eight. Maybe when you choose to help someone with their budget instead of giving them a bunch of scripture to read, maybe you help that person go from a negative eight to a negative seven. And maybe when you finally meet that person up for coffee who lost someone that was dear to them, and just by holding space and weeping with them, you move them from a negative six to a negative five. See, I think many of us were so obsessed with the point of following Jesus that we forget that God has taken all of us on a journey to get to know him too. And it's God's job to grow the seed that we sow in the ground. And so for you to disarm the heart and to meet them with their needs as opposed to our agenda can help. So the second point, I think, the second takeaway we get is that I think Jesus is saying, don't let your motivation source be fear. I learned this about zebras. So zebras, if you didn't know, they have to know where the lion is. Because if they can't see the lion, that lion could get them at any moment. And if they get too close, that lion could get them. And so they carefully look at the lion and they stare at the lion. We ain't zebras, but yet some of us are giving our lives to the lion. All we do is obsess with the lion instead of having community with the other zebras. And I think one of the best ways this is described is that fear is like a toxic ex. <laughs> Let me put it this way. Fear is just the toxic ex that interrupts your peace and tells you that the only way you'll ever be loved and safe is by being together. It's like a toxic ex that calls you in the middle of the night and leaves a voicemail crying, saying that no one knows you like I do, and you won't be safe or loved because we've been through so much stuff together, and you begin to get convinced that no one is going to love you the way that your fear did, and it helps you keep you safe. We need to break up with our fear. Now, inevitably, fear is going to be a part of life. We're going to have fear be a motivation source, inevitably. But to make it the primary motivation source is what we need to break up with. I had a huge moment with this where I realized I am so afraid of so much. In fact, um, it's going to be so embarrassing, but I brought my journal. And I one day listed out every single fear that I had in my life when I think it got to like 40. And so I wrote down, I'm afraid that I'm going to be consumed with work. I have a fear of neglecting my family. I'm, I have a fear of having no energy. I have a fear of being perpetually exhausted. 
I'm not going to read that one. The fear that I'm not capable. I'm, I'm afraid of doing hard work. I'm afraid that I can't learn new skills. I'm afraid that I'm going to be held in contempt by people or criticized. I'm afraid that I'm not an expert. I'm actually just an imposter. I'm not also reading that one. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose a lot of my habits because I hold on to them thinking they're going to be good for me. I'm afraid of hurting people with my true authentic self. You get, you get the picture. And so I, after doing this, I had a moment to say, I don't want these fears to be the primary motivation source of my life. So I wrote a breakup letter to fear. Are you ready? Dear fear, I hereby break up with you. I'm so dramatic. All right. You will not control my life or, or my future. You will not define or limit me. I will hear and respect your voice as you do keep me safe sometimes. I will hold space, but I will not let you become or define me. And like a toxic ex, you convince me that I need you and you only, and you're the only way I'm to feel loved and safe. I need to allow myself to be me and be who I want to be. And then I was kind of in my revenge era. And I want you to return my body, my goals, my mental space, my joy and my peace and my love. Thank you. That's going to get a clap. I think the final point is not to let your motivation source be fear, but to let your motivation source be love. I think you can use your talking points and scripts, and that'll work, especially if it's coming from a deep, deep place of love, and it'll work. But I think about my son Bronson that I mentioned earlier. He has this horrible habit of not being able to change his pajamas in the morning to the point where it's like a 20 to 30 minute, embarrassingly, sometimes an hour of getting out the door. And my wife and I have not been able to figure this out with him. And so I began to channel, what was it like for me as a kid to have to do things I hated? And I remembered all those mornings with my mom, turning the lights on, saying, get out of bed. I remember all the time she forced me to do that. I was like, oh my gosh, okay, I completely forgot about this. And all I do with my son is I get him up and I prime and, and ready him. I prime him. I'm like, hey, hey, it's daycare day. And what are we going to do today? And like, I'm just priming him all the time. And I'm like, that's exhausting. And so the next morning I woke up and I get downstairs and my son is in the position of guardian of his body. And I go to him and I scoop him up and I sit on the couch and he flops on top of me for 10 to 15 minutes and we just lay there with no agenda. And after that, he changes his clothes and we leave on time with no tears. I think many times what they need is different than what we want. What my son needed was different than what I wanted because I had an agenda. And how many of us would do so much better with our neighbors, our family members, our friends, if we gave them what they needed instead of what we wanted for them? Many times we're given the Bible verses when all they want is a hug. Maybe we can sit down and coach them and help them with their budgets instead of trying to give them a script. And so that when we present the script or the talking points or our authentic, deep passion of why we really believe instead of what we're supposed to say, it'll meet them and disarm the heart in a way that moves them closer towards following Jesus. And so for you today, what's your mina? What is in your hand that God has given to you uniquely? In a moment, we're going to watch a video from a guy named Nate Hawes, who during COVID Felt like he had a lot in his hand due to his gifting and his skill set. After we're going to go into worship, if, you want, if you'd like to join us for that. But take a look at Nate's story, and I want you to begin to get inspired about what God has put in your hand. Take a look. 
August of 2020, um, right before school was about to start, I was on my way home, heard on the radio that, you know, a bunch of schools in our area were not reopening. And I just thought immediately, like, this seems like a challenging prospect for a lot of families. So I got home, talked to the wife, and uh, had this idea of giving kids uh, a desk, something that they could use at home. You know, stores were sold out of them or people were overpricing them. So I knew it would be a struggle. So we started, we put it out on Facebook and basically just tried to get a feel for whether or not people needed this or how best to distribute them. To fill everybody in, I guess the intent of all of this is actually to give these away um, to families that can't afford to buy a desk right now. Pretty quickly, we got a few responses. A lot of people shared the story and we ended up getting about six requests. After about 10 desks were distributed, we got picked up by a local newspaper. And then the next day after that story ran, I got a call from Fox 2. Earlier this month, Nate Haas, who works in the commercial construction industry, got an idea. If I can give some kids a dedicated workspace, especially families who can't afford a desk otherwise, that would be my mission. So Nate got to work. Within an hour, uh, I had an extra 100 requests. And for the next week, uh, that doubled again. So I was at over 200 requests in, in a single week. I kind of felt like my whole life, God's given me the opportunity to kind of develop my skills with you know, tools or working in workshops or things like that. But I never really knew what that was gonna lead to. This opportunity came up and I just felt like, hey, I have a garage now, I have a shop space now. So we started the process and uh, I, I prayed that I would get some type of help in all of this, uh, especially on the fundraising side. So we published videos, asked for requests, and the money came in um, kind of just as we needed it uh, to fulfill this list. I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't gonna be able to do it alone. And God kept bringing me people that, honestly, that uh, uh, offered their own garages to help facilitate it. And we had people working all over painting, building desktops, building desk legs. And the only thing I did in my garage anymore was just assemble it and distribute. We ended up with, I would say, five or so hardcore volunteers, which was pivotal because we were able to manufacture desks and bring the, bring the desks to these kids faster because um, school had already started. We worked through the list as much as we could and we would reach out. Some people would just say, no, I found something else. And the list started to actually dwindle. We got um, so many cancellations that it seemed as though uh, God was taking the finances that we had and aligning it with the list that we needed to fulfill. Towards the end of our effort, um, I realized that we had about two desks left to make and about $10 in the bank account. So I spent about an hour in the garage working on a video to ask for more money, a couple of last donations. And I don't know what it was, but I couldn't get the words right, didn't feel right. And I felt like God was basically saying, you're worried too much. I told you at the beginning of this, I got you. And I think it's time you let me show you again how I got you. So the next day, opened up uh, Venmo and I had gotten two donations overnight, one for $30 and one for $50, which was the perfect amount that I needed to get the materials for the last two desks. And I just thanked God. I could, I 
just couldn't believe that he had worked that out again on something that I had tried to formulate a request for additional funds. For me in my situation, you know, I was working off of a thought that I think God prompted me on and that, you know, if there's ever an, a chance now where uh, a, an opportunity continues to present itself where that thought turns into, you know, the yellow brick road of a path forward, um, I think that what I've learned now is that, hey, recognize that and feel the comfort that God will provide the entire way. And if there is anybody that's ever wondered, you know, hey, I might have a, a skill in baking or I might have a skill in mowing the lawn, there might be opportunities just right around your community or, or with the person next door that you can use those God-given talents in a very maybe small way that could you know, change your community, which is pretty, pretty cool to think about. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.